You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. That defense mode. We're survivors. Like... But they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be joined by Dr. Daniel Etner, professor in the Department of Palliative Rehabilitation and Integrative Medicine at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Dr. Etner, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners and telling them what piques your interest within your field? Thanks, Alicia and Lizette. Uh, it's a pleasure to be part of this podcast. Yes, um, I've been an oncologist for a long, long time. In fact, I was an oncologist for about 20 years before I moved into my current field of palliative medicine. And I did many years in the laboratory as an undergraduate and then subsequently during my training. And I became very interested in the idea of curing cancer. I had my research laboratory when I uh, took my first faculty position uh, at Baylor College of Medicine many years ago. But through the years, I just naturally evolved into kind of practicing palliative medicine in that through the years of, of practicing oncology, which I found very gratifying, I just started to appreciate power of the relationships. And, you know, sometimes our careers evolve in ways that are unpredictable. About the time I started to focus more on psychosocial aspects of oncology, I moved from one institution to my current institution, MD Anderson, and for not only my career interest reasons, but also kind of logistical reasons, it made sense for me to be have a home in palliative medicine. My academic focus is on communication and communication skills training and ethics and end of life. So it, it was a kind of a natural evolution that uh, many of us agreed to make. A lot of people think that palliative care is just for end of life. And we feel that it's throughout the whole journey. Is that not correct? I agree with your perspective. Palliative care, right. We get a bit of a reputation of being really associated with death, but the true intention of palliative care is to help people live better throughout the trajectory of illness. So what we really want to do is to get involved with the care of patients very early, particularly if they face a situation that's really grave or looks like it'll be life-threatening, but we don't want to be asked to um, to help out at the very last moment, rather earlier in, in the trajectory. In addition, we care for a lot of patients who are curable. So, for instance, we 
help with pain control and other symptom control for patients with, as an example, leukemia or lymphoma, who those patients can be very curable oftentimes. Uh, we'll help with those symptoms earlier in the course, even if they're cured, and also many other malignancies, patients with those curable malignancies. What's the difference between palliative care and hospice care? Hospice care is a small component of palliative care. Palliative care is, you know, addressing quality of life throughout the disease continuum. So from, you know, theoretically from diagnosis to either cure or end of life, whereas hospice care is focused exclusively on uh, the last six months of life and optimizing quality of life during that time period. So hospice is, is sort of a subset of palliative care. And when someone is diagnosed and receives that cancer diagnosis, it's a devastating thing to think about what they always say, what the new normal will become. How do you have the conversation with patients that allows them to understand that palliative care doesn't mean that they're giving up? Right. You know, I listened to the podcast by Dr. Karma Byland recently, and she spoke all about communication. It's a great podcast. And I think a lot of the things we'll talk about today will complement what she says. We're not going to really repeat what she said. She had so much uh, to say about kind of empowering the patient and so forth. But some things that maybe she didn't have time as much time to touch on include things like really getting the story out from the patient. So it's very powerful if a patient says, for instance, that they hope for cure, even if cure is, you know, would be unprecedented and it was very unlikely that's an opportunity for the clinician to find out more about the patient's perspective, to validate those hopes and dreams and validate other fighting spirit, maybe validate their religious, uh, spiritual strength. So when we talk about end of life and patients have hopes and dreams, it's, it's a great opportunity for us to validate that and then, you know, form better relationships with them, stronger relationships. Yeah, that's true because we have a lot of patients that, have chronic blood cancers. So the goal for treatment is to manage the disease, not to cure it. So having that conversation is very important so people know the goal of treatment. Because as you said, some people may have a different goal that they want for themselves, but it's not something that the doctor would be working towards. So that communication is very important. And we try to highlight communication between the patient and their treatment team all the time. But we do get a lot of patients and caregivers saying that they might not have the time with this physician. You know, how do you actually communicate well with someone if you feel that you only have 15 minutes? Yeah. Well, you know, as you guys were talking with Dr. Byland about, you know, it's important for patients to be empowered and and try to take control of the conversation. But the healthcare team, the clinicians, the physicians, and the rest have a, an obligation to also proactively gather the patient's perspective and hear their story. So, you know, 15 minutes isn't a lot of time, but we can do a lot of work in 15 minutes and we can do a lot of listening. I would say that in a typical clinical encounter, for me, I'm doing 10 to 20% of the talking and 80% of the listening. Mm-hmm. And that's that can be really helpful because as um, as you all were talking about in the other podcast, you know, there's two experts in the room or at least two. There's the patient and then there's the physician or the you know clinician. And how can we 
really serve the patient well if we don't know their perspective. So we really need to, you know, they have to empower themselves and know what to ask, and then we have to really carefully listen and try to elicit their story, their perspective. So you're training physicians to do yes, this. Great. exactly. How do you do that? How do you train How physicians you, to um, um, more active listening, I guess? Right, right. Well, about eight years ago, I started a curriculum here for medical oncologists, even though I'm now practicing palliative medicine. Um, I have a curriculum that goes throughout the whole year of the first year of medical oncology fellowship. These are young doctors who are in their final stages of training before becoming independent faculty or providers in the community, practitioners. And we have, we've published some work on this. We, we have a longitudinal curriculum in which we use a lot of narrative, so we read stories, medically-themed stories. We, we have reflective exercises to get them warmed up, and then we work, we really actively work on key skills, like, for instance, listening carefully, asking open-ended questions to get the patient to tell their story. And the most important thing that we work on, and it's very, very hard to teach, but it is possible to teach, is empathic responding when emotion enters the conversation, which it always does because Patients have, you know, they're scared, of course, uh, with leukemia, lymphoma, other malignancies. It's really important for doctors and other clinicians to sort of stay in that emotional moment for a little while and, and not change the topic to some medical, you know, biomedical topic or, or theme. So just listening and responding empathically is important. We teach these skills over, over a year in very active form. We get them in small groups and you know, we use narrative, we use role play, and we do some modeling. So that's how we, we try to teach them, and it takes a whole lifetime to kind of continue to hone these skills. Right. You've published several articles in peer review journals, and like you mentioned, you developed research and programs to improve communication between cancer patients and their providers, study the role that culture plays in oncology practice, and I mean, culture is so important. We think about, you know, how the world is a kaleidoscope of cultures. And, I mean, on this podcast alone, we have listeners from North America, from South America, from Asia, from Africa, all over. And in understanding that we're different, we realize that that difference must be recognized within healthcare. How important is culture or cultural awareness within cancer care? It's so important. And culture permeates everything that we do. I'm fascinated by culture. I love to hear people talk about it. And oftentimes in we have a case conference every week in my department and we present very challenging cases and often patients are from, you know, international sites overseas and because this is a, you know, a referral center here at MD Anderson. And uh, my colleagues will often invoke culture as an explanation for behavior, which is fair enough. But, you know, I often think that we're all more alike than we are different. So I like to think of culture sort of in the cross-cultural sense. And I wrote a paper on this uh, a few years ago where when I approach any individual, I do my best not to kind of pigeonhole them and say, oh, they're from wherever, Asia, they're from, you know, Middle East or wherever they come from, and they must be thinking this or doing this. I'm open and curious about them as individuals because I can't really make assumptions about what they're thinking. And I just find out by listening and asking uh, questions. Right. And how do you find that fine line? Because there's the awareness of and respect for different cultural traditions and thoughts and opinions, and those are valued. But also 
the perspective that a healthcare provider, you know, can't possibly know all cultural perspectives. So how do you find that fine line between understanding that culture might play a role, but also not thinking of that patient within a, within the realm of like a stereotype or something? Stereotype, exactly. Uh, you've hit the nail right in the head. This is the key question. And the way I do it, and I think the literature is consistent with this approach, is to not make assumptions and not stereotype and not be prejudicial, but just be open. And so my attitude is people are people. And in the final analysis, there are some nuances and cultural differences and religious and so forth. But in the final analysis, everybody or almost everybody wants about the same things in life. You know, we want security for our families. We want prosperity. We want peace. We want to educate our children. Uh, we want our health and so forth. And so there's so much more common ground when I have a conversation from with, with somebody from far, far away, and they might be in clothing that looks very un-American, and they might speak a different language. But when we talk about family, when we talk about common human values, we open a window and we learn about that person and we connect that way. And isn't it also very important to know about cultural differences and these nuances that you're speaking of so physicians and healthcare providers will be more in tune with possibly the needs of that patient? I know from a Latin background that we like to include a lot of the family in, in our decision-making. Um, yes. So I like when I go somewhere and they're already aware of that um, and they ask me, but I don't always feel comfortable letting the treatment team know, and I know that I have to be a part of my treatment too. That's how I make a decision. So in other words, if I understand correctly, uh, if you go for a visit, uh, you're by yourself with the healthcare team, let's say the physician, and you would like to have your family involved. You'd like to have them in the room, but you don't usually have them in the room. Don't usually have them in the room, and there's sometimes where the doctors really do want the decision right there and then, mm -hmm. and I want that time to go back and discuss it with my family. Yeah. That's a tough one, I think. See, then that the physician has to have very higher order skills there and ask things like, well, are you comfortable with this decision? Do you need further input from your family? Do you want to think about it? Or they might even look at you and uh, from your nonverbal communication tell, well, you may not look like you're completely committed. Maybe you're a little skeptical. And you want to think about this a little bit. So it, it does take nuanced skills to be able to pick up on those kind of cues so that you can involve your family. Now, I will point out, Lizette, that I don't know if that's – I mean, I appreciate the fact that um, that's consistent or the, involving the family is consistent with Latin American culture. But it's consistent with Middle Eastern culture, and it's consistent with Asian culture, and it's consistent with American culture, too. So uh, it is a cultural phenomenon, but it's I think that phenomenon is more human than it is so-called Latin American. I would agree. Yeah. You mentioned the different programs that you've created. 
in regards to teaching this, this awareness uh, to healthcare professionals. How would a typical program be run to help bridge this cultural distance, you know, that exists between healthcare providers and these patients? Yes. The program that we have, for instance, with medical oncologists, and we also have a similar series for the palliative physicians and trainees, and I do a lot of workshops and seminars for a wide variety of providers and other people. Some of those seminars, workshops, are focused specifically on the issue of so-called culture, but many of them are um, more broadly focused on, you know, challenges in, in communication, let's say, in, in the palliative setting or in the oncology setting. And then what we do is we really think about what are the key skills that we need to bring to bear to succeed in just about any scenario. We've talked about some of those key skills today, you know, really listening carefully and responding, you know, with empathy when emotion enters the conversation. Those kinds of skills sound really simple, but they're not. And like any kind of skill, whether it be playing tennis or piano or open heart surgery, they take a lot of practice. So we kind of bring forth these basic or I should say foundational skills that although foundational are not simple, they're nuanced, we help people practice these skills. And when we, what I try to do is when I teach anything is to adapt to the learner, adapt to the needs of the learner. So if today the learner or learners want to focus on how to talk about, for instance, code status, you know, heroic measures, or they want to talk about this transition off of disease-directed therapy when it's appropriate onto, let's say, a palliative strategy, or they want to talk about somebody who's abusing opiates. We adapt to their needs that day, and then we also adapt to their skill, skill level. So if their skill level at a certain level, we don't want to be too advanced, it'll be too stressful, or we don't want to be too elementary, they'll be bored. So we try to adapt to the learner's needs and bring the, you know, bring the skills forth, uh, teach the skills that are appropriate for the situation, whether it be a cultural challenge. You know, um, a very common cultural challenge is uh, that we we hear about when I travel and, and we meet with others, they often talk about uh, the challenge of requests for non-disclosure. So they'll say, you know, the classic is, please don't tell my mother she has cancer. And we, we encounter that here in, in America, too, when they travel to us. That's the kind of thing where if somebody, if that's the hot topic for them, then we talk about that so-called cultural issue. But we use the same skills in dealing with that as we would any other challenging conversation. Yeah, that's tough. We did have a colleague that was from France, and she actually said that when her mother would go for treatment, doctors would not tell patients that they have cancer. That in was France. In France. Yeah. And, uh you know, I, I didn't know that. And she said, yeah, people, you know, they just take the treatment and really don't talk about the diagnosis, which is something very different in the United States. And especially now, I think, with the younger population asking more and more questions mm-hmm. and feeling like they are a part of their treatment team and able to answer questions, the older generation may not be as comfortable asking their doctors questions. Right. There's a new day today with, you know, empowerment, which I think is great. Social media, which is, I have mixed emotions about. 
um, <laughs> most of great, you know, but uh, the internet and so forth. It can be a beauty and a beast. I, I understand. That's right, beauty. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a literature on this phenomenon where the world over, it's now clear that the vast majority of patients want the truth. There's this collusion of silence in many places in the world, but patients want the truth. Doctors want to give the truth, but they somehow have this tradition of withholding the truth because families feel like the truth will be harmful. But studies have shown that uh, when when patients uh, really want uh, information, even if it's serious information, uh, they'd rather they'd rather have information than uh, than not, and they get actually more upset or more depressed or anxious not knowing what they're up against than if they get the information. Right. That's true, because if you don't actually know, probably start making up what you don't know, and that Th- would. That's right. Then, yeah, that's more anxiety. But I am I'm I am surprised because I do know a lot of people that might not necessarily be so open to ask about their prognosis. You mean because they're just they don't feel like it's their place to sort of question the doctor or there's the intimidation factor? I think so. I definitely think intimidation has a role to play in it. Now, my family is Jamaican, and when my grandmother was diagnosed with cancer and we would go into her appointments, the majority of the of why she wouldn't be very forthcoming with information was because I think she was intimidated by the fact that she didn't know how to properly describe how she was feeling. Many times they would say, you know, how bad is the pain? And she would say, you know, it's bad. And then, you know, they would say, okay, what type of pain are you feeling? And mm. it was always a conversation between she and I because I would try to get it out of her. And I would say, is it, is it a dull pain? Is it a sharp pain? Is it a you know, persistent pain? And she would just say, you know, it, it's, a, it's a pain and it hurts. There was an age component, but there was also an intimidation component where it came into you're walking into this office, you have this diagnosis that you know about, and you're speaking to this expert about this thing, and you don't know if you can have the expected conversation mm-hmm. of, of how she would like to explain herself. So I always felt that that was a huge barrier when it came to our appointment because we can't speak for her, of course. Yeah. It yeah. How it feels, or you know, what, what type of type of medication she would want to be on when it, when it came to pain. But we always tried to get as much as we could, you know, as a family backing, like Lizette said, a Caribbean backing, you know, family is very involved. So even doctors would say, wow, the whole family came out today. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we would come in and, and we would all try to give tidbits about what we think she's trying to say mm-hmm. based off of just how shy, I mean, a personality thing as well. I mean, she was a shy person. Mm-hmm. So there, there are so, there's so many components you, that you have to take in into play or factors just take into play when it comes to people, their personality, their culture, their comfort level, so many things. Absolutely true. Adapting to them. And I think I would have liked to have met your grandmother because (laughs) she sounds like a woman of few words, but deep thoughts. (laughs) And it would have been fun to try to get some of those thoughts and find out what she was thinking. But, you know, some people don't think in terms of medical textbooks. They don't think about pain is zero to 10 and sharp stabbing or whatever. They think of whatever. And so I had a patient the other day describe, he described his primary tumor as a Rottweiler and the little ones in his, in his abdomen, the, the metastases as, as chihuahuas. Very, you know, vivid and, uh, it helped me understand the patient better and bond with him yeah. and get his perspective out on that. Um, so 
sometimes when we try to force words like sharp, dull, and stabbing, they don't yeah. fit the, the patient's perspective, and that's why it's good to kind of sit back and see what they have to say or not say. I wish she had met. I wish she had met you too, Doctor Ebner. Yeah. Definitely, <laughs> we would have left her alone yeah. with you and just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're talking about the patient perspective, but then when you have, you know, someone like Alicia and her family in there, you also have to take into consideration all the caregivers' perspectives too. Yes. Um, well, yeah, it's, they're inseparable. <laughs> right. The patient and family are one big happy unit. It's a package deal. Yeah. It's a package deal, you, you know, that you can't separate them. Absolutely, the family. And sometimes it's tricky to, you know, sometimes the dynamics are not healthy, and there can be, you know, you really want to focus on the patient first, but family dynamic can be sometimes difficult, and one has to be kind of strategic about how to um, handle that information flow sometimes. Yeah, I could see that being difficult as to, um, you know, confidentiality. Yes. Especially if the patient really lets you know that they want their confidentiality. Right. That can be tricky because then family members might be offended. And then ethical considerations come into play because sometimes families want something for a patient that the patient doesn't want. And sometimes those interventions are not really medically indicated, but they're pushing because they love their patient and they want to keep pushing. And it's, it becomes quite difficult to handle those situations. In a sense, the, the family becomes the patient at that point. We have to deploy the same communication skills toward family members as we do toward the patient. I have a great aunt in Jamaica who has myeloma and I was talking to her son the other day. And I was saying, you know, how is how is Aunt Gwen doing? And he was like, you know, interesting enough is that we were talking, and I really want her to stay on this medication. I really want her to do it. Call the doctor. I was like, I want put her back on this, you know, on this drug. It's helping. And she wanted no parts of it. She's she's mm. like, I don't feel good when I take it. I I rather be off it and mm. see what happened. And I mean, he said that he broke down. Like he, it was a very, it was very sad for him because in his mind, as a son, he wants to give and make sure that she's doing what you're, you know, quote unquote, supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, as the patient, like you said, that the patient has different needs, and her need was, I rather feel okay, and that unfortunately means without that medication that you so desperately want me to take. Yeah, that can be really tough because your cousin loves his mom and you know as a a clinician I would look at that conversation and say you know it's really tough but it's also this great opportunity to acknowledge and respect your cousin's love for his mom uh, and how powerful that is and also respect your great aunt's you know need to live her life the way she should or wants to and I don't know what her age is but she's probably not super young so, you know, she wants to live how she wants to live, and that's really important. So a com- conversation like that is challenging, but it's also a great opportunity. Sure. And we've had a lot of caregivers, uh, be it children or spouses, contact our information specialists here in search of clinical trials. And we 
love to search for clinical trials. And they say, okay, my, my mother is 95 and, mm. you know, we want a clinical trial. What do you have out there for her? And with her specific disease indication, it might not be something that she would be able to have. Mm-hmm. And then we, we do try to get the patient and lo and behold, you know, the 95 year old parent says, I, I don't want treatment. Mm-hmm. So that's been difficult too, which is when the patient does not want treatment, mm-hmm. but the family member does. And yeah. those conversations surrounding that and what does that mean? Basically, if, if you don't want treatment, does that mean that you're going into hospice or does that mean that, you know, we don't know and you might have to go on a different medication in, in a year? Mm-hmm. Well, that's such an interesting scenario. You said the patient is 95 years old and there's so much underneath that conversation because, you know, here are people, the kids who are probably you know, 70 themselves, and they're desperately trying to save their mom or dad who's 95. And the clinician might say, gosh, 95, he's lived a good life. We don't want to, you know, hurt this person. It's such an obvious medical decision to not offer therapy because somebody at that age is so frail, potentially. But it's interesting because what's underneath that is this real love for, you know, between the, the kids and, and the parent or the patient. So that's where the, you know, the power is in that conversation. It's very much about treatment decisions and biomedical stuff, but it's more about this relational aspect, you know, about that deep bond between the, the patient and, and the family. Would you recommend that patients and families not only have their physician to speak to, but other parts of a treatment team that can assist them through the process of making decisions about their treatment? Yes, I do. I think when you think about the healthcare team, it's truly a team and any, any well-functioning team has different components that do different things. You know, quarterbacks, linebackers, they don't do anything close to what, you know, to the same job. It's the same thing on a healthcare team, whether it be palliative, brain surgery, no matter what. And so the physician is a really important part of the team. You could, you may even say that the physician is the leader of the team. But in the final analysis, the physician is only one part of the team, and the physician needs every other person on the team to do, you know, to do their job to, to provide the best care. It might be, it might be, well, certainly the nursing staff is, you know, unbelievably important about really providing care at, at the direct human level. The psychosocial team is critical. Social workers are part of the psychosocial team, counselors, psychologists, you know, everybody. So, yeah, they, everybody has to function and have their A game going in order to provide the best care. But also, we touch upon the whole idea of the importance of communication within the healthcare team. But mm-hmm. I love, you know, conversations like these that, allow us to get into why it's important, but on a level of, you know, culture or age or gender or, you know, all those things, because you made a great point earlier. 
although we can say, you know, we have our differences because of our culture, culture is also the common denominator. That awareness of differences or similarities are the same. You want, we want to live. We want, you know, good health. We want family. We want friends. We want to be heard. And I think what you do is so, so important. On that episode of Karma, being an expert in the field, maybe they think they know. I mean, they, maybe they think, you know, I, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm saying. That's right. You know, You're right a, about that, yeah. So I, I, I listened to the podcast with Dr. Byland, and, and she did diplomatically make the point that many physicians may have a higher opinion ab- about their relational skills than they actually do have. I'm not sure why that is. I think it might feel like, a, you know, like sort of like somebody's deficient in some way if they if they don't have those relational skills and they don't really think about them that much and practice them and they're not mindful about it that much. And so people, many clinicians are, they don't focus that much on, on the conversations. Could be because they're so busy with the biomedical stuff that they feel like they don't have time. There's a lot of reasons for that. You're right. But it is something that, you know, it's near and dear to my heart because what breaks my heart is when I see patients with cancer, any kind of malignancy, who get very appropriate treatment, but then they reach the point where disease-directed therapy really isn't helpful anymore, and everybody knows it. You know, the nurses are in distress. The health, you know, at least we're in, you know, the palliative team is in distress, and and then they're getting therapy that is with good intentions, and it's to address their hope of, of a cure or a benefit, but we see that it's really, they really aren't benefiting anymore. So, you know, it's these, these kind of learning, learning these skills are important because I think one of the um, challenges, one of the impediments to, to giving people best care uh, when their malignancy is no longer curable is the fact that these conversations are just so hard for the, the doctor to have. Yeah. And, and you said that people, would probably want these conversations earlier than later, correct? Yeah, it's um, studies have shown that having conversations about serious things should be incremental. So uh, oftentimes we make the mistake in medicine of, you know, hitting a, reaching a, a point in time, a single point in time toward the end of somebody's life when we have this huge conversation and it doesn't, feel right to anybody because they're going 100 miles an hour and then all of a sudden they stop and it's their transition to a purely comfort strategy, whereas it would have been better to incrementally little at a time through months or maybe even years leading up to that, mm-hmm. have these conversations when the moments arise. That makes sense. Yeah. And like Alicia, I think it's so refreshing to to talk to more and more physicians that are so patient-centered. We just had a physician tell us that he became an oncologist and he really is patient-centered and very big in communication because he went with his grandmother to the to the doctor and mm-hmm. she had colon cancer. And um, when they went to the doctor, his grandmother said to the doctor, I don't want any more treatment. I, I want hospice at this time. And he said that the doctor, she flailed her hands and said, you know, you're just giving up. And why are you just giving up? And and didn't listen to his grandmother. 
So mm-hmm. he had a conversation walking out from that appointment with his grandmother, and she said, you know, you would communicate better than the physician communicated with me. Mm-hmm. And instead of becoming an astronaut, he became a doctor. Mm-hmm. So yeah. because he thought that that would be important to to really, you know, meet someone where they are. Mm-hmm. So this this young person was going to be an astronaut, but after hearing this conversation, decided to become a doctor. That's an yeah. interesting story in and of yeah. itself. <laughs> That, yeah, um, he's yeah. very interesting. He's that, he's great. That. He's a myeloma physician and um, uh-huh. very patient-centered. That is so interesting. Wow. And it's, it's just shocking to hear a physician. But, you know, when I hear a story about a physician like that, now I get curious and wonder, like, what's underneath that? Like, why would a physician do that? And, you know, what are they feeling? What are they thinking? And it's hard to know. It's It's, you know, but there's more to that story. You know, we're, we're, we're brought up through medical training, at least I was, you know, through many years ago, to see death as failure. And I think the American culture is still very much that way. Throughout medical training, we have exams on which there are right and wrong answers. So I guess maybe that mentality spills over on, into some people's practice where they feel like this is a fight and we can't lose and we use you know, uh, military metaphors of, you know, the war on cancer and fighting and winning. And whereas really what we ought to be thinking about is how do we, you know, at any moment in time, how do we live the best we can? Because uh, long life isn't, you know, we're, none of us are guaranteed long life. We want to live the best we can at any moment. That's so true. And it's funny that you said those terms about fighting and battle and all that stuff, because even here sometimes we'll get people that say, I don't want to be called a survivor. I don't want I don't want to be called, you know, I just I'm I'm a patient undergoing treatment, you know, Mm -hmm. living the best life that I can. And there's no word that needs to be pinned to it. Mm -hmm. I'm not surviving this thing. I'm I'm simply living. And you're just living. Right. So they don't want to be labeled. I remember watching, I believe, a documentary about I want to say about patients and and ATPs and kind of the experience of of, you know, getting treatment and and like that type of relationship. And to your point, I remember one doctor saying, my job is to save this, this patient's life. So I think, I think along the lines of seeing death as a failure, that I think that's definitely a part of it because in that doctor's mindset, it was, okay, you came to me to help you to live. And so we're going to do everything we can to, to get that done. Mm-hmm. So when you hear someone say, you know what, I want to be on hospice at this point. Mm-hmm. Maybe that is a feeling of failure because you came to me to survive and now that you think that now that you don't want to listen to me in regards to your treatment plan that might be seen as failure like you said. Yeah. Well, it also depends on the circumstances. So, if somebody's outlook taking disease-directed therapy, let's say chemotherapy as an example, is not very favorable, then the physician should, you know, acknowledge that and and accept the premise that somebody who doesn't want to accept chemotherapy might be making a very good decision. On the other hand, if somebody were to come to me with, um, let's say, diffuse large cell lymphoma, which is very curable in, in high proportion of patients, or uh, acute myelocytic leukemia, or these days chronic myelogenous leukemia, you know, these are very, very treatable illnesses. And if somebody who is healthy, and had those diagnoses and had a good outlook, good prognosis, and they said, 
I don't want any treatment. That would create a tremendous amount of distress for the oncologist. Those are few and far between. I think what you're talking about more is commonly is somebody who really doesn't have a very good prospect. They say, I want to focus on quality, and that's, in my mind, a very reasonable approach. And I did, I haven't asked you, but I did want to ask you because I've been seeing (laughs) more and more on when you go into a physician's office and you have to do the paperwork. I've seen more and more um, physician's offices asking about religion, um, Mm. which is something that I didn't know before that that never was asked. Mm -hmm. But now it's it's actually part of the information that they gather. Mm -hmm. Um, You think that physicians are taking religion into consideration more? I don't really know why, you know, systems like healthcare systems are gathering the data exactly. Uh, and I can't really speak for all physicians, whether they're considering it, but I do know that spirituality is very, very important to, to speak of or to deal with in a, in a medical encounter, time permitting, you know, under the right circumstances. So, and then spirituality, of course, is a bigger construct than religion. Religion is, you know, related, but different. And religion is really important to many people. So I think it's very powerful to ask about spirituality, ask about a person's religious tradition, if they have one, how important it is to them, uh, whether they're having spiritual distress under, under the, you know, because of the illness. That also opens up a, a big window, an emotional window into that person. It also lets you know about their, what kind of support they have. If somebody is a really, strong part of a church community that they've been in for many years, they're very active, you know that they've got awesome social support. And that that's a that's like better than gold because when you put forth any kind of treatment, um, that social support is going to help you, you know, help the patient succeed. So asking those things is very relevant. I'm not sure, you know, I don't I don't talk about religion every single encounter, but it's certainly a good thing to do when it comes up or if it's relevant and I hope that more physicians are dealing with it or asking about it under the right circumstances. When there's different cultures, you're sensitive to the fact that that difference exists and the kind of the language and the behavior and all that and all those other factors that, that, that come into play. But I also think the same thing applies to religion because I, I remember going again with my grandmother and my, my family were, were a Christian family. And I remember going to one of the appointments and one doctor saying, you know, science can't fix this. Hmm. Now, that might be fine. Science made so many leaps and jumps when it comes to science and what it's able to accomplish. However, speaking to a family where our reliance is heavily on God, hmm. um, not with the exclusion of science, but to, to have it be the hear-all and end-all. I mean, my grandmother walked away from that saying, well, you know, and actually saying it to the doctor, you know, God is in control for us. And so science is helping. But it doesn't stop there. And I think that same type of awareness of who the patient is and the how to communicate to them effectively comes into play when it comes to religion as well. Well, I'll say amen to that. <laughs> no, I, I, I totally agree. I totally agree with that because validating somebody's religious tradition and faith and spirituality is, is so powerful. We often say that um, when somebody talks about their faith, we I'll often say, you know, that's the strongest medicine we have. 
I think that the biomedical technical, you know, things that we have are, are powerful too, but they, they work, they complement one another. The spiritual, the psychosocial, and the biomedical are all complementary. They work together. Yep. And when people speak about spirituality, it's that opportunity to, to, uh, get to know them better and, and to, to bond with them. We have, in fact, we have in our department here at MD Anderson Palliative Medicine, actually the department is called Palliative Rehabilitation and Integrative Medicine. And so we, we have many faculty in our department, one of whom Marvin Delgado, sole academic focus is on spirituality and he writes about it and has meetings about, um, spirituality. So, um, it's a very important focus. We also have in our department, integrative medicine and we have wonderful people well our chairman of the department is eduardo barrera who's a luminary in the field and a leader we have many great people but we also have somebody in integrative medicine called lorenzo cohen who's the chair of of integrative and he's done beautiful work really nih funded work on mind-body interventions that help with um, symptoms and pain and so forth in addition, we have people in that department like uh, Dr. Chaul, who is um, an expert in Tibetan meditation tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, even though that's not his faith tradition, he, he's a meditator, basically. He teaches meditation. He's, you know, so we use these, these mind-body interventions, these integrative uh, interventions to help complement the other biomedical treatments we have. So spirituality is just one thing and, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of things that, that help us, um, take care of patients better. Very well rounded over there. <laughs> yeah, we've got it covered. <laughs> Although yeah. we're always trying to expand, you know, but we've, we've got a, we've got a lot of cool stuff going on in this department. Speaks the needs of that a, a patient is multifaceted. It's not just their sickness or their illness. It's, it's beyond, or their diagnosis. It's beyond that. They have other sides that, that also play a role into how well they do. And that's, that, that's the reality of it. Absolutely. In fact, um, as you can imagine, when people face really grave illness, as we deal with here at a cancer center, MD Anderson Cancer Center, anxiety has to be part of the picture. I mean, why wouldn't they be anxious? They have to be worried. And, and so, um, having, not only traditional, you know, medications to address that and, and psychotherapy, but also integrative mind-body techniques like simple breathing and meditation, you know, yoga, really powerful to help people get, you know, cope with illness and and get the best treatment, respond best, and then just live best. We have spoken with a physical therapist um, that has done a virtual lecture for us, and he did show um, a lot of empirical research that did say that it was very helpful uh, meditation yoga all of these uh, complementary therapies have yes. been very very um, helpful for patients yeah if you think about anything that you do i mean any kind of skill a sport or music or anything Part of a large part of the success is just getting in the right frame of mind and and being focused and you know relaxed to the right measure, but also also alert enough to to accomplish the task. So those mind body interventions are are really important, and we probably 
you know, do these things. I don't know what you guys do on a regular basis, but you're probably doing things. I know I do things kind of throughout the day, little tiny things that, that are maybe mini meditation or mini breathing, maybe not a full blown meditation, but little things to kind of get like, for instance, when you prepared for this podcast today, I'm sure you, you know, you did certain rituals and things to kind of get your mind ready for it. And it's similar for any undertaking any patient does and to succeed. Dr. Epner, thank you so much for existing and for doing what you do. Um, you shared such great information with us today, and we cannot wait to have you back on future episodes. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Great to be part of it. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time. 